So um, our reading this morning is quite lengthy, um, so it's from Mark chapter 7 and then into Mark chapter 8. So Ben Fraser is going to come up and read the first part of that for this morning. Uh, I'm going to adjust this microphone for him just a little bit. Um, and it's uh, Mark seven thirty-one to 8, verse 13. Um, if you want to turn it up, it'll also appear on the screen behind me. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Jesus heals a deaf, man, a deaf and mute man. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of Decapolis. There were some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. They begged Jesus to place his hand on him after he took him aside away from the crowd. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to the heaven and with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ethahata, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened and began to speak plainly. Then Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus feeds the four thousand. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to, to him and asked, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days. I will have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long way, long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can we get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had them ta- when he when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciple picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to ask question and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighs deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got into his into the boat and crossed to the other side. Reading again from Mark chapter 8, from verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the bread, the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, my thanks to Duncan for leading us uh, through the service so far, and thanks to Ben and to Angus, who both did very well. Thank you, Angus, as well, for your reading this morning. That was super. Uh, my name's Johnny. If I haven't met before, I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here at Hebron, and we're really glad to have you with us uh, today. Uh, we're going to spend the rest of our time thinking about the passage that we've just had read for us. Uh, you might find it helpful to have that open uh, over the course of the next few minutes, either on a, uh, an electronic device or a physical copy would be helpful, um, I think. Before we do that, I'm, I know Duncan's already prayed. Let me pray very briefly also for the next few minutes. Let's pray. Uh, our God and Father, we praise you for revealing yourself to us in the scriptures. And we pray now that as we study those scriptures together, you would please give each one of us eyes to see you clearly ears to hear you speak, and hearts to respond. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, let me begin this morning with a question, as I sometimes do, to get us all thinking. The question is this. What would it take for you to believe in Jesus? What would it take for you to believe in Jesus? What would have to happen 
to make you believe in him, do you think? And I should say by believe in Jesus, I don't just mean to believe that he existed as a historical person. No, I mean, what would it take for you to believe that he was who he said he was? And that what the Bible tells us about him is true. Let me modify the question for anyone who has already believed in Jesus. For those of us who are already Christians, think for a moment of a friend or a colleague or a family member with whom you might have had conversations about the Christian faith, perhaps over the course of a number of years. Or if you're part of one of the Christian unions gearing up for events weeks over the course of the next few weeks, just think of some of the people you might be keen to invite along to some of those events. What will it take to convince those people, the people who are in your mind right now, that it is really worth trusting in Jesus for themselves? Now, you might give a number of different answers to that kind of question. My guess is in a room of this size, you probably will give a number of different answers to that question. You might think that community is key. Community is an attractive thing in our culture, isn't it? And and so seeing a real and a loving Christian community in action, well, that will convince people that Jesus is really worth following. Perhaps instead people need to be shown that the Christian faith really works, that it makes a a real difference to real people's lives, the the peace and the purpose and the hope that it gives to Christians. But whilst community can be persuasive, and whilst it does help to know that Christianity does work, my guess is that for quite a number of us, what we think people need And what we would need to persuade us to trust in Jesus is evidence. We want proof. Watertight proof that Jesus really was who he claimed to be, that he was God's rescuing king, that he was God himself. In fact, perhaps you wouldn't describe yourself as being a Christian, and that's one of your biggest stumbling blocks. Because to your mind, there just isn't enough proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be for you to be willing to put all your chips in on him. Well, if that is you, if you're someone who thinks that that proof is important when it comes to believing in Jesus, well, let me just say that you're in good company. Because the man who wrote the account of Jesus' life we're thinking about this morning, a man called John Mark, he thinks the same thing. He thinks that evidence is really important when it comes to believing in Jesus. And you might actually have picked that up as the passage was being read a few minutes ago, because there are three whopping great pieces of evidence in our passage this morning. Proofs that Jesus really was something special, something out of the ordinary. So just look down with me if if you have the passage open in front of you. At the end of chapter 7, Jesus heals someone who is deaf and unable to speak. Immediately after that, at the beginning of chapter 8, he turns a packed lunch into a feast for 4,000 people. And then later in chapter 8, in verses 22 to 26, he heals someone of blindness. And on each occasion, it isn't told as a fairy tale, as a myth, or as a fable. No, miraculous though they are, Mark wants us to see these events as factual. And that because they're factual, 
they are evidence that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. Not just a good man, not just a special teacher, but God himself. So you see, evidence does matter. And when it comes to Jesus, the people among whom he lived had lots of it. And as we read the Bible, we have lots of it too. But that isn't the full story. Because you see, at the same time as furnishing us with evidence, as piling up miracle after miracle after miracle through his account, there is a bit of a sting in the tail for us this morning. Because you see, whilst Mark would agree that evidence is really important, he also wants us to see that proof alone, no matter how good that proof is, even if we see it with our own eyes, will never be quite enough. In fact, in Mark 8, Jesus says that it's just possible, even after seeing miraculous sight and healing miracles happening right in front of you, verse 18, to have eyes and not see. To have ears and not properly to hear. And so our big point for this morning, if you switch off and forget everything else that I say over the next few minutes, remember this. Although there is plenty of evidence, objective, historical evidence, that Jesus was who he claimed to be, at the same time, it takes a miracle to believe in Jesus. A miracle in you. Now, I don't want you to take my word for that. I want you to take Mark's. So um, just have a look with me at where I'm getting that from under our first heading this morning. Revelation miracles of hearing and sight that reveal Jesus' identity. And now as we join the story, Jesus is in a region called the Decapolis. And a man is, is brought to him by a crowd, verse 32. And um, the crowd begged Jesus to lay a hand on him, presumably to heal him as he had done to many others before. Heal him of what? Well, the man is unable to hear. And he has what Luke initially calls a speech impediment. It's a fairly major impediment, though it seems significant enough that, that Luke later describes him as being mute, unable to speak intelligible words. Jesus takes the man away from the crowd for some privacy, verse 33, at which point something pretty strange happens. Jesus puts his fingers in his ears. He spits most likely onto his hand and touches the man's tongue. And as he does that, he speaks a word, ephatha, an Aramaic word, which means be opened. In verse 35, the man is healed. Now, all of that might strike you as, as being a bit strange. I mean, the miracle itself, by definition, is out of the ordinary, obviously. But, but even the way in which Jesus goes about it with the fingers in the ears and the spit on the hand, it's all a bit unusual, even for Jesus. Why does he do things like that? Well, lots of, of people have speculated over the years. To be honest, we don't really know exactly why he does things that way. But we do know that it isn't for nothing. Now, I wonder how you feel about repeats. 
think of uh, repeats on TV or uh, uh, watching an episode of a TV programme or a film you might have watched countless times before. Uh, some people are dead against them. Uh, I'll be honest and say I'm actually quite for them. I really enjoy uh, a repeat. There can be something quite relaxing about watching something or reading something for a second time because, uh, well, you already know what happens. So you don't really need to pay all that much attention to it, which maybe says quite a lot about what I'm looking for uh, in uh, what uh, I watch you can even fall asleep halfway through your favourite movie and wake up without really having missed anything, or so I'm told. Well, Mark is a big fan of repeats. We're going to identify two of them in this little section alone in chapters 7 and 8. But the reason that he likes them isn't that it gives his readers licence to switch off for a bit. It's quite the opposite, in fact. Mark repeats things... Because he wants us to pay attention. It's almost his way of double underlining something for us. And the first of those double underlinings comes in these miracles. So the miracle at the beginning of our unit and the miracle at the end of our unit. I wonder if you notice that he kind of bookends our section with these two miracles, which are clearly different events. The first one at the end of chapter 7, the second one, chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. Now, they are different events, But they're also very, very similar to each other. I wonder if you noticed that. We just thought about the first, the healing of the deaf and mute man. So look on with me to the second, and we'll see that together. The healing of the blind man, chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. In verse 22, again, an individual who has a kind of sensory impairment comes to Jesus, is brought to him, in fact, by a crowd. This time he isn't deaf, as he was in chapter 7. This time he is blind. Verse 23, again, Jesus leads the man away from the crowd to get some privacy, just as he did in chapter 7. Verse 24, again, Jesus spits as part of the miracle. Now, that isn't unique to these miracles, but it isn't all that usual for Jesus. So seeing it twice in quick succession is meant to suggest, I think, we should be thinking of these two in the same kind of category. Verse 24, he lays his hand on the impaired part of the person's body, just as he did with the deaf man. And verse 25, again, the man is healed. Now, there are differences between them, I know. But there are quite a lot of repeated details in those two miracles, aren't there? Too many to be a coincidence. And perhaps most crucially of all, notice that they're both revelation miracles. Revelation in in two different ways, actually. Revelation, firstly, in the sense that they allow someone whose, whose physical senses were somehow impaired... To use those senses again. They could hear or they could see. But secondly, revelation miracles because they reveal who Jesus is. Just notice that in the healing of the blind man, chapter 8. After the healing has happened, Jesus is walking with his disciples, verse 29. He asks them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him, You are the Christ. That word Christ isn't a name, remember? It's a title. It's the title given to God's rescuing king. And so you see the conclusion that Peter reaches from from all the evidence that he has to hand so far is that Jesus is who he claims to be. Not just a prophet, not just a holy man, but God's rescuing king. And that same kind of revelation happens at the end of chapter 7. Again, just notice that with me. Chapter 7, verse 37. People were overwhelmed with amazement at Jesus having just healed the deaf mute man. 
He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now that might sound like a straightforward summary of what has just happened, and in one sense it is. But in another sense, it works almost like a hyperlink. Do you know what a hyperlink is? It's it's one of those words or, or images on a computer screen or a phone screen that when you click it, it takes you to a completely different page. I usually click them by accident and then spend ages trying to get back to the page I really want to be on. Well, that's kind of how verse 37 works. It is factually describes what's just happened, but it also takes us to a different page of the Bible. Because around 700 years before the events we're reading about in Mark's gospel, God had made a promise. A promise through a prophet called Isaiah. And it was a promise that he would come to rescue and to rule over his people. And he told them what that coming would look like. He said in Isaiah 35, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Can you see what's happening? In Mark 7, the people are making a connection. A connection between that promise 700 years earlier that God was going to come and rescue his people with what Jesus was doing among them now. So can you see both of those miracles are revelation miracles. They're revealing things. Revealing things physically for the, for the man who was deaf and the, and the other man who was blind. But also revealing things spiritually to the people who are paying attention at least. Revealing Jesus' identity. And it is just worth noting that, because we said at the outset, didn't we, that that following Jesus is not just blind faith. It's quite literally the opposite of blind faith in Mark's account, isn't it? It's open-eyed faith. It's based on real historical evidence. And that might not be the kind of category into which you would put the Christian faith. You might instead think of the Bible as a, a collection of interesting or, or kind of inspirational stories or sayings like, like Aesop's fables or, or the Norse myths or something. That doesn't necessarily mean you think they're bad. Great stories can be, can be powerful, they can be inspirational. But the truth is, if a story is just a story and doesn't go any further than that, well then I can choose to pay attention and be moved and inspired if I want but I can just as easily choose not to pay any attention to it at all. But you see, if the miracles of Jesus actually happened, as Mark intends us to understand them, if he really did give a deaf man back his hearing and make a blind man see, that isn't something we can really take or leave. We have to do something with it. The conclusion that the crowds draw, the conclusion that Peter draws is that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is God's long-awaited rescuing king. And so my question for each one of us this morning is the same one Jesus asked of his followers. What about you? Who do you say that he is? But that isn't the end of the story. We're going to think about that under our next heading. Even when miraculous evidence repeats itself, still people won't see 
and here. Now, if you've been here over the past couple of Sunday mornings, uh, reading chapter 8 might actually have given you a bit of deja vu. It's another one of Mark's repeats, uh, because in chapter 6, we read about a feeding miracle, quite a famous one, in fact, the feeding of the 5,000. And in chapter 8, we're in similar territory. So just like last time, Jesus is surrounded by a vast crowd, but chapter 8, verse 4, there's nowhere to buy food because of the remote location. And so just like last time, the disciples scrounge whatever food they can, some bread and some fish, and they give it to Jesus. Jesus gives thanks, and the bread and fish are handed out. And again, just like last time, everyone has enough. More than enough, in fact. They gather up baskets and baskets of leftovers. Now again, you might wonder why the repeat when there's a repeat on, on TV, it's usually because the broadcasters have run out of, of other stuff to show and they've got a space to fill. But that isn't the case for Mark. No, we're given a clue about why Mark includes this repeat in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8. Just look at those with me. Chapter 8, verse 3. If I send the people away hungry to their homes, says Jesus, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Now remember, the disciples have just seen Jesus feeding 5,000 people not long beforehand. And you've got to think that if this whole situation gives us deja vu as we read it, that it was giving them deja vu as they watched it happening in front of them. All of the same situation seems to be repeating itself. And so we're expecting them to say, "Eh, Jesus, we've we've got this packed lunch, you know, and, and so I know it's a big crowd, but it's... Well, it's a bit smaller than last time. Could you not just do that thing with with the bread and the fishes again? But what do they say instead? Verse 4, his disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? See, the disciples still don't understand who Jesus is. And that is one of the big reasons for Mark, including this repeat in his account, I think, Because even having seen Jesus doing this exact same thing before, having seen the evidence with their own eyes, having heard it with their own ears, they still don't get it. And if you're not convinced that that's the main point in Mark's account, read on with me to verses 11 to 21. Because there are two different responses to Jesus in verses 11 to 21. Both of them, though, are variations on a theme. Just notice that with me. Firstly, we meet the Pharisees, the religious leaders, in verses 11 to 13. And again, remember what we've just read. Jesus has healed a deaf-mute man. He's fed 4,000 people with a packed lunch. And immediately following that, read with me verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. They're asking for a sign. Given what's just happened, for, for more evidence. Seriously. I mean, what more do you want? And so Jesus' response is understandable. Verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. It's no wonder he groans, is it? Despite all the evidence they've already been given, they want more. Evidence alone, it seems, will never be quite enough for them. 
And that isn't just true of the Pharisees. Look on with me to verse 14 and following. Jesus and his followers get back into the boat. And Mark records what seems to be an incidental detail. Verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread for the journey. But Jesus is still thinking about the Pharisees' blindness. Verse 15, he cautioned the disciples saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, uh, being stuck inside during the lockdowns of the past couple of years has had some strange effects on some of us. Uh, I think some of us got right into fitness and took to doing aerobic exercises with Joe Wicks every morning. Remember that? Uh, There was a time when having a meeting on Zoom was quite an exciting prospect. Can anyone remember when it was exciting? Uh, Nope, me neither. Uh, And uh, there was also an outbreak of bread making that took place across the land. So much so that there were shortages of baking ingredients on the shelves and the only way to get your hands on some baking yeast was on the black market. And uh, and that was a problem, of course, when it came to making bread. Uh, Because even though it doesn't look like very much, even just a tiny, tiny little bit of yeast or leaven, well, it spreads all the way through a dough and makes it rise. That's what it does. And in Mark 8... Jesus warns his followers that the hardness, that the unbelief of the Pharisees and of Herod is like yeast. It'll spread through everything if you let it. It'll even spread through the disciples. And that's a bit surprising. That even though they've been so close to him, they've seen his miracles firsthand, the unbelief still poses a danger to the disciples. And yet, verse 16, even as Jesus is teaching them about the danger of unbelief, they keep arguing about the fact they've forgotten to bring any lunch. I mean, he had just shown that he had power to feed 4,000 people with a couple of loaves and a few fish. And they're worried they're not going to have enough for a livingses. Jesus intervenes, verse 17. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? See, the problem was that they didn't see. They didn't hear. They didn't remember. And that is just so striking. Because they had seen all those earlier miracles with their own eyes. They'd just finished eating the bread. Collected basketfuls of it with their own hands. In spite of all that Jesus has shown them. Despite the fact that he's literally in the middle of teaching them about the danger of unbelief. The disciples still don't believe. See evidence though so very important. When it's on its own is not quite enough. And that, I think, starts to make sense of why Jesus sandwiches this feeding of the 4,000 between those two other miracles. Because you see, just like the deaf man at the end of chapter 7, and just like the blind man in chapter 8, the only way that the disciples will come to see and to hear is by a miracle. Now that was true for them then, and it is true for us now. 
It always takes a miracle to see and understand Jesus as he really is. And we'll see that more briefly under our final heading this morning. Finally, someone sees things clearly, or do they? Verses 27 to 30. Now, we have already touched on this little unit, but it is worth looking at it again. Because even though Peter seems to reach something of the right conclusion about Jesus, well, he doesn't get it completely. So you just notice that even after he's declared Jesus to be the Christ, verse 29, Jesus tells him not to tell anyone about him, verse 30. And that might strike you as being a tad strange. But the reason becomes apparent just a few verses later, and we'll see this in greater detail next week. Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to go to the cross. That's where he's going to die. He will suffer there. And Peter's having none of it. Of course you won't die, Jesus. That would never happen to you. And in response, get behind me, Satan, says Jesus. See, even now, even though Peter has started to get it, he still doesn't get it completely. He still doesn't understand fully what this Jesus had come to do. Even for people who were close up and personal with him, who watched him do amazing things with their own eyes, something external, something miraculous had to happen before they would recognize him for who he really was. Let me put it another way. Just as Jesus unstopped deaf ears and healed blind eyes in Mark 7 and 8, we need God to unstop spiritually deaf ears and to heal spiritually blind eyes. If we are to see Jesus as he really is. Now knowing that. Should actually be a liberating thing. If you're a Christian. I wonder how many of us panic. At the thought of talking about Jesus with a friend or a colleague or a family member. Because that friend might ask questions that I just can't answer. Or are anxious about inviting someone to a course like Hope Explored on a Tuesday evening because you know how sceptical they are. And frankly, there is no way they're going to be convinced about Jesus by spending three Tuesday evenings chatting to old muggins here. See, if the only factor at work when we tell people about Jesus is quite how well we marshal the evidence, well, it's no wonder we'd be anxious to open our mouths in the first place. But whilst Mark is clear that the evidence is important, that it's persuasive, that it stands up to scrutiny, and so we should confidently share the good news of Jesus with people around us, at the same time, try as hard as you might, evidence alone will never make your friend or colleague or family member become a Christian. Why? Well, because recognizing Jesus for who he really is Requires a miracle. Now I'm conscious that all of that might raise as many questions as it answers. Perhaps, for example, you're here this morning and wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian. And you're wondering whether that means you don't bear any responsibility for your decision to follow Jesus or not. Because if it's a supernatural act of God, why not just sit back and wait for him to turn the lights on? 
Well, Jesus is crystal clear that his disciples and the Pharisees do bear responsibility in Mark 7 and 8. Just listen to those words again. Verse 17. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? No, it's important to engage with what's in front of you, not to switch your brain off and stick your feet up. The evidence is really persuasive, if only you'll consider it. And yet, even if you had all the evidence in the world, that in itself is not enough to tip the balance. So as well as thinking on the evidence, as well as taking it seriously, Jesus, I think, would have us pray. Would have us ask that he would open blind eyes. That he would unstop deaf ears. Those blind eyes and deaf ears might be those of yourself if you're looking into Christian things. Ask God to help you as you read and study and speak about the Bible. Or those blind eyes might be of of others, the people we tell about him week by week, the people who we hope to come along to see you events over the course of the next few weeks. Ask God for his help. Of all the meetings you'll have during the course of an events week, one of the most important ones are the prayer meetings you'll have each morning. See, the rescue and the rule that Jesus, God's rescuing king, came to bring really is so wonderful. Duncan touched on it in his introduction this morning. It is paradise. And it is wonderful now. But it will only be enjoyed by those who have believed in him. And we need his help to do that. So let me begin by asking him for his help. For those who have yet to believe, and those who have believed and long that others would too. Let me lead us in prayer as we close. Jesus said, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for the good news of Jesus Christ. That he came to rescue. That he came to rule. That his rule is good and right and perfect. And that despite our rejection of that rule over our own lives, that he secured our rescue by dying the death we should have died. We ask this morning that you would please impress upon all of us just how wonderful that good news really is. That you would open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears. That we would treasure you as our saviour God whether for the first time or that we would treasure you afresh. And for those of us who have believed, would you please help us to tell other people of that good news with confidence, confidence that the evidence itself is compelling, it stands up to scrutiny, but with even greater confidence in your power to save We ask all of this for our joy and for your glory. 
And we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.